there are more than 2.4 million prisoners in the United States of America. Since the year 2000, the total number of women serving in the United States has increased by 50%, while the male prison population has grown about 18%. It is now estimated that one in every 30 men will spend at least some time behind bars. According to the Innocence Project, between 2.3% and 5% of all U.S. prisoners are innocent. The American prison population numbers about 2.4 million, so using those numbers, as many as 120,000 innocent people could currently be behind bars. So prepare yourself as we go in to the prison series. It was the eve of World War I. A new open-air penitentiary opened about an hour west of Indianapolis. Overcrowding at the major state prisons in Michigan City and Jeffersonville, as well as at county jails all over Indiana, led to ideas of an alternative form of incarceration. At the time, many prisoners, after all, were behind bars for minor crimes like theft, assault, and battery. But all that would be boiled over when in 1917, jackass Indiana Governor James Goodrich initiated statewide prohibitions two years before the official federal liquor ban would happen in 1919, which every Indiana citizen like myself will tell you is just a classic dumbass Indiana move. I mean, we just recently legalized buying alcohol on Sundays. So this state, we enjoy being stupid. Uh, some so <laughs> I'm gonna get flack for that one. Uh, since some Indiana counties and towns had already passed local dry laws, by 1915 sheriffs were cracking down on operators of illegal saloons, moonshine distilleries, and town folks simply drinking on their own because we say we're the land of freedom, but actually, fuck that. You're not allowed to drink what you want. The war on having the right to a beer after work would lead some people into a jail cell for weeks or even months. On top of this, government overreach was the realization that profits could be gained from inmate slave labor, which is something that any enlightened person will tell you that is a massive ongoing issue today, is just capitalizing on inmates who probably shouldn't even be there and using them. For slave labor for quarters a day. Liquor laws would also pave the way for the resurrection of the Ku Klux Klan during this starting year of 1915 because stupidity attracts stupidity. The original Klan had died off in the 1870s, but now it would find its highest membership as white middle-class Midwesterns flocked to their white robes and praised the mass incarcerations of anyone they wanted to frame. The ideology of the Second Klan, moreover, wasn't totally foreign to the reform movements of the 1910s. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot within just the first few paragraphs, and I promise I'll, I'll get a little bit more detail there. The idea of the farm wasn't originally just supposed to be a slave camp. Jailers and prison reformers genuinely wanted a way to find something better for inmates and to cure criminals of their attraction to law-breaking. This theory was that inmates were bonding behind bars while living in idleness, as a Hoosier paper, the Haggardstown's Records, put it in 1916. 
Jails are simply breeding places for vice. Lawbreakers thrown together in sheer idleness day after day have opportunity and incentive for devising more lawlessness. The hardened men create an atmosphere of viciousness that influence the less hardened, while the shiftless vagrants find very little punishment in free board and no work. And given that that was said then, you can still hear people say the same thing now. It's like word-for-word word stuff that you see like boomer Facebookers, right? Unfortunately, anyone who has even a basic knowledge in history class knows that penal labor has proven time and time again to become petty, corrupt, to straight-up evil, lest we so easily forget the British sweathouses or Russian gulags. A 1913 law passed an Indiana legislator made possible the establishment of a pioneering state penal farm. That law appropriated $60,000 for the purchase of at least 500 acres of land to help prevent party control and graft. The bipartisan committee, like the prisoners themselves, would receive no salary for this work. You are just working for work's sake. But it was a chance for prisoners to be outside and not sit in a prison cell all day. So a lot of a lot of people, you know, farming was a big sense of pride. It still is, of course, but during this time people were really excited about it. The committee the committee eventually bought 1600 acres around Putnamville, 5 miles south of Greencastle, which is where I was born, in a hilly, rocky part of Putnam County. Much of this acreage was seen as garbage for agriculture, so no farmers even wanted it. But they went forward with it anyway, figuring, you know what? It's not supposed to be easy. The future farmland was covered in Indiana's gorgeously famous limestone, so prisoners were first put to work breaking rock in quarries. The classic imagery of a chained man with a pickaxe breaking rocks under the sun is exactly this and exactly what you're thinking of. The crushed rocks would be used for building roads and gravel for other farms, while the prison itself would pocket the cash. Inmates would also chop down trees, saw lumber, tend to dairy herds, pick from apples and peach trees, and harvest fields that grew corn, hay, soybeans, sorghum, pumpkins, and tobacco. The prison was also home to 190 pigs. Most of the harvested goods would be sent to patients and staff at state hospitals. Then, three years later, in 1918, a brick plant was erected and soon prisoners were turning out 30,000 red bricks a day. The bricks were used in construction of a new medical college and a military warehouse in Indianapolis and of the Indiana Village for Epileptics, later renamed the Newcastle State Hospital. An additional fun fact about Indiana history during this time is that epileptics were considered a menace to society and fully segregated from the public. Indiana's 1907 eugenic laws forbid epileptics to get married and would even sometimes be subjected to forced sterilization. So... You know, your boy, which I did that myself. I got a vasectomy, so. <laughs> the Indianapolis News reported that the rumor of the farms coming spread over the hills and valleys like wildfire, and that residents believed it would make the old village glow with new life. Friends of prisoners and sightseers will come and go, and the Putnamville will thrive on the nickels and dimes they spend. Although the farms were barely guarded, punishment for escaping was incredibly severe when captured. In classic Les Miserables style, inmates serving only 90 days could find their sentences extended by at least two years, when and if they were caught. The majority of the inmates sent into these labor camps were for petty offenses. The overwhelming amount was due simply to the new liquor laws. Oh, you had a Bud Light? Cool. Go break rocks every day. People captured for selling liquor, crafting, or just enjoying one too many drinks. Like, you could literally just have 
a second beer and then go outside and, and some rent a cops there with a billy club. <laughs> this unfortunately but inevitably gave the government a sense of allowance to capture and enslave people for even just the pettiest of crimes. The, rep the reputation of the penal farm grew across the state in stories of its backbreaking labor, and it haunted anyone even at risk of going. Less than a year after its founding, John Albright, a bootlegger from Terre Haute, actually requested deportation to his native land of Germany during the height of World War I, rather than just serve 90 days at this farm. In May 1915, just a month after opening, there were already 217 prisoners living at the farm. Then, by the end of that same year, that number exploded to 1,200. In its first decade, the farm would approximately house 25,000 prisoners. An absolutely horrifying number, a small army of people filing in and out of enslavement for petty crimes and being sentenced to hard labor. It was then in 1920, a controversy broke out over allegations of cruelty at Putnamville. Charles McNulty, an Indianapolis saloon keeper, let out on parole, filed a complaint with the State Board of Health. McNulty's claims about unsanitary conditions and violence were backed up a year later when Oscar Knight, a prisoner, filed a further complaint with a judge. Knight claimed that the jailers served inmates food that is not fit for hogs. McNulty alleged that prisoners were routinely underfed and worked 10 hours a day at hard labor. Meat was only served once a week, and even then it was one slice of bacon. Less than what prisoners at other jails got while merely sitting in a cell, and these guys were doing back-breaking labor every day. Musty and rotted meat was actually openly used for making cornbread three times a week, until Putnam County Health officers finally forbade the use of it. On Sunday... Sometimes five saltine crackers were seen as an appropriate substitute for the dry bread that they would normally get as a meal on weekdays. Some of the paid guards were openly cruel and inhumane, especially to persons with disabilities. They would often be seen beating weaker prisoners with canes and laughing at them as they struggled to do tasks. Because, you know, of course, just any cartoonishly evil thing. Like, it just... <sighs> There's got to be a better vetting process for hiring prison guards. <laughs> there were further allegations that Governor Goodrich's family and friends of the administration, of course, profited from unpaid labor, since inmates at this Putnam colony were used towards the growth of the Globe Mining Company. This was a company that was partly run by the governor's son. Charles E. Talkington, superintendent of the penal farm, blew these charges off, claiming Charles McNulty is a member of the International Workers of the World, or Wobblies, and Talkington had previously been head of the farm colony for the feeble-minded in Butlerville in Bartholomew County School District. Okay. The feeble-minded farm, also called the Muscatuck Colony, was another part of Indiana's dark eugenics campaign, which blamed crime on mental retardation and enslaved those unable to fend for themselves and had no one to stand up for them. So, you know, fucking evil. It was in August 1922, George Dale, this dude, journalist, badass. He was arrested for calling out a judge who he knew had Ku Klux Klan connections. He would also come to the defense of prisoners at the state farm. Dale Cla called Clarence Darth the judge. The most contemptible chunk of human carrion that ever disgraced the circuit bench in the state of Indiana. 
fucking phenomenal. Dale was sentenced for contempt of court and libel, naturally, because judges sometimes just are the softest pussies ever that freak out if you don't worship their special robe and wigs. This easily wounded judge served our boy Dale a 90-day sentence at Putnamville. After 11 days in, the, in a Muncie jail, the editor entered the State Farm's gates as convict number 14,378. Dale's wife, Lena, went to the Indiana Supreme Court and fought for her husband's freedom, and miraculously, the court ordered Dale's release after just three days. However, these three days were enough time for him to see firsthand how the inside of the prison worked, and he now had a chance to write from actual experience and not just the report of others. While wealthy bootleggers and prohibition violators with connections in government often got off scot-free, Dale wrote that when he went to Putnamville, he stood in line with working-class men, actual people serving actual time. Stepping into the prison, he explained that in exactly 10 seconds, my head looked like a billiard ball. This 56-year-old father of seven claimed he was then forced to strip down and shower in public, received filthy clothes that smelled like sin, got sprayed down by a fruit tree sprayer, and was vaccinated by a veterinarian. Of the eight meals he ate in the mess hall in the course of three days, he never got any meat. He slept in a miserable, freezing dormitory with 204 other inmates, most of them sick and packed in like sardines in a can. Dale insisted that many of these inmates were jailed on trivial liquor charges. He described one man whose family was left subsisting on charity while he rotted at the farm for almost two years, having no money to pay his fine. Though prisoners were now supposed to receive a dollar a day for their labor. Always keen to publish news about the discrepancies in punishment handed out to African Americans versus whites, Dale mentioned black teens at the penal farm sentenced for bicycle theft and other minor offenses were often given much larger sentences and harsher punishments. The editor put out an appeal to Governor Warren Terry McRae to investigate this Putnamville disgrace. While he commended the governor for investigating similar jail horrors in Marion County and at the new Indiana Reformatory in Pendleton, Dale wrote a lengthy piece about how the cattle on Governor McRae's bull farm near Kentland lived better lives than the prisoners at Putnamville. Taking heed of these accusations, Dr. James Wilson, the mayor of Wabash, Indiana, love that place, refused to send any further offenders to Putnam County until that place of horror was changed from a torture pen into a place of punishment where convicts are treated like human beings instead of dumb brutes. In 1926, two years after Ed Jackson, a literal fucking Klansman, became governor of Indiana, Judge Dirth and Editor Dale were still fighting. Dirth, once more crying like a bitch, sent Dale back to the penal farm when the journalist continued to ridicule him. Dale was also found guilty on a wildly exaggerated charge of liquor possession, which in this sense could probably just mean he had a can of beer. Uh, and also, of course, libeling uh, George Roger, a Muncie distributor of D.C. Stevenson's newspaper, which was called the Fiery Cross, which was a KKK reference. The jury was rigged and packed with Klansmen who wildly declared Dale guilty of carrying a concealed weapon, which just didn't exist. Dale appealed the case to the Indiana Supreme Court, but lost, as Judge Julius C. Travis wrote the opinion that the truth is no defense, which is you know, truly spine-chilling quotation. He added that Dale had held the law up to ridicule, and this just made him guilty, regardless of any actual crimes. Just let that one sink in. <laughs> 
Let it marinate. Newspapers in Chicago and elsewhere started a defense fund to support freedom of speech. George Dale was now a massive pillar when it came to the history of free speech, especially in Indiana. Though the Klan almost took over all of Indiana government in the 1920s and is still an ongoing battle, George Dale never backed down. Even when he would be attacked by gunmen who tried to shoot him and his son, our guy took on the Klan with humor, writing in outrageous lampoons about the cuckoos of Clucksterdom in his weekly paper. Dale also published lists constantly of suspected known Klan members. Just a fucking hit list. It's amazing. In July 1926, Dale spent a further nine days at Putnamville digging a tile ditch. He was released, strangely enough, by order of the Klansman Governor Jackson himself. He got another sentence in August 1927, but just spent a half an hour there. It was enough time, however, for him to be fingered and booked as a convict. He also described a conversation with a young African-American James Martin, who was sentenced to six months for stealing $5. Martin had a wife and three children who would be left to try and survive without him, in a time where not only African-Americans were harshly punished for simply existing, but particularly women and children were openly and nightmarishly abused. Judge Clarence Death, Dearth, <laughs> whatever, Death is fine, the, the jackass, of Muncie was finally impeached. In an incredible twist of karma, George Dale would become Muncie's mayor from 1930 to 1935. As editor and mayor, he would continue to keep an eye on corrupt judges and police. Amazing. Heavy drinkers were packed off, however, to Putnamville all the way into the 1950s. Through the 1960s, inmates milked cows, tended orchards, and grew vegetables after raising 18 acres of tobacco. About 40 convicts a year escaped in the 1970s and 80s, and the staff and guards were unarmed, so things were getting a little out of hand. In 1977, the farm was reclassified as a medium security prison and began receiving convicted felons rather than just people who committed petty crimes, which partly contributed to the decline of farming there in the 1980s. The 80s and 90s would see a massive influx of Aryan Brotherhood members. Guards would openly brandish Brotherhood tattoos and get away with horrific abuses towards other staff as well as prisoners. An incredibly in-depth and nightmarish report from Kelsey Kaufman can be found online, and it's titled The Brotherhood Racism and Intimidation Among Prison Staff at the Indiana Correctional Facility, Putnamville. The depth and clarity of this testimony is jaw-dropping, and part of me almost just read the entire thing cover to cover, but it is, it, like, it's, it's a full book. But, yeah, I mean, I highly recommend, if anything I've said here is interesting to you, to look that up and check it out yourself, because it is pretty fascinating uh, but corruption from the lowest guard to the highest leadership positions multiple reports filed by co-workers and inmates of abuse both verbal and physical multiple offenders getting away because of their racial connections and the actually good guards were getting railroaded out of the prison on at least 11 occasions between September 1992 and March 1994, staff and inmates filed formal complaints regarding racial and sexual harassment, intimidation, physical assault, drug trafficking, and corruption on part of the Brotherhood staff. DOC investigators reported numerous incidences that were racially motivated and very demeaning that staff charged had been occurring almost on a daily basis over a long period of time. Brotherhood staff were charged with spitting in food that was being handed on trays specifically to black inmates, assaulting black inmates, threatening staff and inmates, and vandalizing property. 
During this massive wave of jackassery, the state of Indiana figured this would be a great time to try and revive the dairy farm at Putnamville. And in 1995, this prison was actually operating the largest dairy farm in the area still operating under the pattern of using inmates for their own monetary gain, yet of the farm's 1,600 inmates a year, less than 100 were doing all of the, uh, the agriculture, like all the milking and stuff. The Kokomo Tribune reported in 1994 that 900 gallons of food scraps a day were being taken from the dining hall, mixed with cow manure, and being used in, compo- in a compost initiative. So that's pretty cool. That project cut the prison's garbage bill in half, and this also showed immediate proof that food was actually being served rather than just five crackers and water, like the psychopath days of old. Getting their house more in order, rooting out the wannabe Nazis, and focusing on actually trying to make a rehabilitation environment. This prison still stands today and is actually a pretty, um, it's it's seen as a pretty admirable one. It's now known as the Putnamville Correctional Facility, and it's overseen by Warden Tricia Pretorius. And although go, the government is still filled with Klansmen and wannabes, there is a constant battle to actually find these people and actually root them out. The facility has been the recipient of several environmental awards, including the 2010 Organization of the Year by the Hoosier Environmental Council for Green Initiatives. That's a lot of words. The 2011 Secretary of Defense Freedom Award and the Above and Beyond Award in support of the National Guard and Reserves. They've got to take these awards and just give them better names. This is ridiculous. But they also got the 2011 Trees, Inc. Recycling and Sustainability Award. The facility now has a capacity of more than 2,500 inmates, where it offers multiple educational and work training programs, including training in computer coding and visual and audio programming, along with other programs specifically focused on education as well as parenting. So just a massive turnaround since this new wardens took over. And yeah, no, prisons are, you know, they need reformed. There's a lot of problems. And I think that does make it important in a way to acknowledge when ones are actually trying, you know, they've rooted out the Nazis. They've stopped the slave labor, Uh, which is, I know, I know the bar is real low, real low, but still good job. And I'm still going to call it out and I'm still going to call out the bullshit, but I'm still going to be like, Hey, you know what? I appreciate that. You're actually doing education and rehabilitation. All right. All right. So that's all I got today. Um, I hope you guys found this vaguely interesting. It's quite a specific rabbit hole. Um, but that's all I got, and I hope you guys have a good week. Try to stay out of prison, and I will see you next Monday.